to disperse this crowd that we created. They basically tear gassed everyone. I've eaten sheep's brain before, but I'd, I'd happily eat that an ox testicle or every day then have to eat rotten shark again. And you just hop on top of this iron ore and you just ride it through the desert. It's just one of the most incredible experiences ever. Hello and welcome to the No Notions podcast. Please leave your notions at the door and come on in. I've visited 91 countries so far and I'd love to visit every country in the world. This is my guest, Tom. I'm Tom. I call myself Traveling Tom. My blog is called TravelingTom.com. The first letter of my name is begins with a T. Traveling begins with a T. And then Tom and .com rhyme, so it just kind of all worked. So Tom is a travel blogger on a mission to visit every country on the planet. So I count 196 countries, but I've been to 91 so far, so I've, I've, got, I've only got 105 to go. In this episode, we'll hear about his most underrated country, traveling to North Korea, and his mission to space. So let's get into it. Here's Tom. It's all about just finding a good deal and going to these places. So in October last year, I visited, I did like a, a few countries in Africa. I did a, in about two weeks, I did four countries. And the first country I went to was a country called Comoros, which I don't know if you can see on the map behind me, it's just here, these small islands. In, in Africa. And the only reason I went there was because I found a cheap flight from Dublin. So I, f I flew from Liverpool to Dublin with Ryanair, self-transfer, it was like 40 pounds. And then I found a flight from Dublin to Cairo, switching in Cairo and continuing on to, to Moroni, which is the capital of Comoros. So that was about 212 pounds. You're not gonna get a flight that distance for 212 pounds without having to go a slightly abnormal route. And that's why I, I did the self-transfer option flying from Dublin. So, What's the most underrated country you've been in? I went to, uh, to Mauritania, which is a country in Western Africa. Now, it's not a place we typically travel to. Uh, I think it's popular with French tourists because it's an ex-French colony, but it's, it's not really somewhere that I'd ever learned about at school or I've ever heard anyone talk about. The kind of cr crowning glory of Mauritania. I'm not sure if you've ever seen any of the photos before, but there's this train that goes through the desert. It carries iron ore, which is basically like powdered iron. And you essentially pick up this train in the middle of nowhere and you just hop on top of this iron ore and you just ride it through the desert and it's just one of the most incredible experiences ever. This train is one of the longest trains in the world. It's it's something like a mile long. It, it's huge. There's like, like over 100 carriages on it. There's no safety to it. You just hop on, you just literally pop on top of this carriage. You climb up the side of, of, the, of the carriage. You sit on top of this iron ore. And yeah, you're just hurtling through the desert on this train. It's just an unbelievable experience. The only thing is... You've got to make sure you're well wrapped up because the, the iron air is powdered metal, basically. It can get, you know, you can breathe it in and stuff like that. So we had to wear like balaclavas, big ski goggles all the way. Um, we had to cover up our arms and our legs. But even though we did all that, we still got like really dirty underneath because the stuff's that fine. It can get through like the fabric in your clothes. How long are you sat on top of this iron ore? 14 hours. So... It's it's a bit mad really because what you're what what you're wearing you're wearing all this stuff to stop you getting covered in iron ore basically, but 
when you get on the train, it's the middle of the night, so it's freezing cold in the desert. And after about six hours, the sun will start to come up and you've got this like blazing sun. It's like 30 degrees and you're head to toe, like your, your legs are covered, your arms are covered. You've got ski goggles on, you've got a balaclava on and you just start going from being freezing cold to absolutely sweating your bollocks off. If I can swear, I apologize uh, if, if you can't. And uh, yeah, it, it's just, it, it, it's difficult to kind of gauge the temperature, but ultimately you're trying to stop yourself breathing in a load of iron ore and getting it all over you over yourself so it's kind of just the, the hit you have to take but to see the, the sunrise come up when you're just going on this on this massive giant metal train hurtling through the desert the sun comes up over the horizon uh, it's, it's just an amazing sight so that's one thing i'd, I'd also recommend people to uh, if you go to mauritania like the, the main thing there is to, to get on this iron ore train and just yeah it's just like some unlike anything i've ever done or ever experienced before how do you get to the point at which you jump on the train is that is that difficult so you have some like a, you'll have a tour guide with you typically a couple of people do it on their own but most people will be in a tour group so i was in a tour group and this fella you stay at a compound a few a few hundred meters away whilst you're waiting for the train and they just do you a bit of food you can use the toilet i think they have a shower as well and then essentially in the middle of the night, they'll get a note a note about half an hour before that the train's about to come in because it's it's so big, you can see it from miles away. So you then take all your bags, you get prepared to get on this this train and you just wait until it, it pulls into the station. It comes to a stop and then bearing in mind, it's over a mile long, so it takes a while to, to slow down and come to a stop. And then you've literally got about five minutes to throw all your bags on top of this this train, clamber up the, the ladder and take your seat for the incredible journey ahead of you when you go to places like this what's the general sort of accommodation and what's the level of like comfort is it is it pretty you know what what, what is it like are you staying in hotels are you camping like what's the situation i was on a tour so we were touring around mauritania for a, i think it was 10 days in total so we had different different accommodations so you, you typically if you if you're staying in like a, a hotel you'll share with someone else on the tour group. So the first night we arrived into the capital, which is, is called uh, Nouakchott. It's right in the middle, <clears throat> right in the middle of the country. And when we arrived there, we stayed in the hotel overnight. And as, as soon as like morning came around, we set off for the, for the desert. We had a couple of nights of camping in the desert. So they provide little, like little pop-up tents you'd have maybe as a kid in your garden or something like nothing fancy. Just have them popped up in the Sahara Desert. You camp overnight, and then there was a couple of uh, they're called like auberge, auberges, I think they're called, and they're these like little, not not quite a hostel, not quite a, a hotel. They're kind of like these little sort of huts in the in these towns they have, and you just stay in them. Um, they, they're kind of like big big concrete huts. They keep you cool because the there's no real sunlight gets in there, and it's somewhere to go to the toilet to have a well, I say have a shower. You have a cold shower in like a, underneath like a dribbling tap. It's nothing nothing special. What about the food? Every night, pretty much, we had a sort of stew with meat and rice. And I would say maybe four or five of the nights, the meat was camel, which sounds disgusting. But actually, it tastes a bit like braised beef. So it wasn't too bad. I quite, I quite enjoyed it. I think it's the thought of eating some of these animals, like eating a camel, it puts you off. But at the, at the end of the day, it's 
I, I take these things as, it, you know, it's a new experience. You're trying something a bit different. And if you don't like it, you can just eat the rice. You don't have to eat the stew. But I, I enjoyed it, to be fair. Um, and then one night we had, like, goat barbecue. So they literally got a goat, like, cut it all up in front of us. It was so weird just seeing them, like, butcher this goat in the middle of the Sahara. Uh, but that was, like, I, I got probably the best cut of meat. I got, like, the leg. And it was, like, oh, it was so tasty, like, absolutely delicious. And because we've been traveling around a lot and there's no real shops to stop off at and, and get treats and things, I I ended up basically like I was this this one day I ended up having like no food, no breakfast, no lunch until we had this goat barbecue. I was absolutely starving and I was just thinking, if I don't like goat, this is gonna like ruin this is gonna ruin the day. And I, honestly, they cooked it to perfection. It tasted amazing. It was incredible. But every other day other than that goat barbecue day, we had stew with either camel or, or chicken. And it by the sort of third or fourth day, I was tired of eating stew. It's just stew and rice. It was almost like mentally challenging to have to eat the same thing every day. Um, so, yeah, I just got a bit fed up of eating the same thing. The, as a one-off, or, or if we did that like a couple of times, it wouldn't have been too bad. But when you're traveling through the desert, it's not like you can just nip to the corner shop and, and you know, buy a, something different if you don't like what's on offer. So you've just got to kind of roll with the punches and uh, just get on with it, really. Uh, it is what it is. What's the craziest food you've ever eaten and where? You know, I've eaten... Uh, crocodile in, in Kenya that was that was strange it was very tough very chewy I've also had uh, ox ball in Kenya as well which did not taste good it, it was a weird soft texture ox ox ball is that what you said ox ball ox testicles I should say if you, if you want the if you want the technical term it, it was the texture that did me so the taste wasn't brilliant but when you bite into it it was like so soft. It was like my teeth were like a knife going through, like a hot knife going through butter. And it, it was just, it was a bizarre sensation. So, it, it, and also it's, it, it's testicles. Do you know what I mean? It's not something that even mentally sounds nice, you know, or, or appeasing. So it, it, it really, yeah, it wasn't brilliant. But the worst thing I've ever eaten was uh, in Iceland. I can't think of the technical term for it or, or, or the name that they call it, but essentially it's fermented shark, so rotten shark. So I think what they do is they they capture shark and they uh, have a feeling that they bury it in the ground for a while and then it kind of dries out and they'll hang it up in like a shed and basically wait for it to ferment or rot and then they'll cut up the meat and they serve it as a delicacy in Iceland now. There was no redeeming features about this. As soon as I opened the little pot they gave it me in, I had a smell and oh, it was like one of the worst smelling things of all time. The texture was disgraceful. The taste was even worse. I just put it in my mouth and I got it I got it down me. And literally, as soon as it had gone down, I was like gagging for some water. I was like dying to throw up. It was it was horrible. It basically ruined my appetite for the day. I could literally, you, you know, when you eat something that's got like a strong flavor and then a few minutes later you'll burp and you can taste it. Well, it was like that, but it was all day. My evening meal was tainted by this rotten shark. It, it was honestly one of the worst things ever. And I would recommend to anyone going to Iceland to actually try it. I know that sounds weird after just slating this rotten shark, but I feel like my words don't do it justice. You actually need to experience the disgracefulness for yourself. If you had to compare it to something that maybe we've tried, well, like what 
what could you compare the taste profile of it to? What what could what could I compare rotten shark to? There's there's nothing there's nothing disgusting enough that we eat. Honestly, I mean, there's some terrible food here in Britain, but absolutely nothing on the on the level of that. Uh, it, it, it's not even. I, I, I was thinking, oh, maybe I could compare it to like processed food or something, but it, it's not even. Yeah, it's just it's just in a, in a world of its own. I th- I think there's some in Sweden. I've never ha- had it, but it's, is it like pickled herring or fermented herring or something? Which, if you open this, like you can get it in like a tin can, and a lot of people order it and eat it as like on YouTube. It's like a food challenge or something. But I think if you open it and you even touch it, like the smell's gonna be on your finger for days. So I think that's actually meant to be worse than rotten shark. But I'm not sure whether I'd be brave enough to try that. Really, um, maybe one day though. You know, I'm actually surprised that that's your answer. Um, the rotten shark is the is the worst. I thought the ox testicle would actually be um, would be worse than that, or I thought it'd be something in that similar vein, like ber- some sort of brain or some sort of weird animal organ. Um, so yeah, I'm surprised rotten shark is is the worst that you've tried. I've I've eaten she- I've eaten sheep's brain before, but I'd I'd happily eat that an ox testicle or every day then have to eat rotten shark again because it's just it is that it, it's just as soon like an ox testicle or a sheep's brain or or crocodile they might not be the nicest tastes but you can stomach it whereas this this rotten shark this fermented shark was just as soon as you even smell it it, it knocks you sick so actually consuming the thing is just a, another level what's the craziest country you've ever been to North Korea, it's kind of a, it is bizarre. It's a strange place. I can't, there's no two ways about it. So some people fly, they, they have an airport. They've got like a one-star rated airline. It's meant to be the worst airline in the world. And they've got this big international airport that basically, if you're on the flight that day, you're the only people at the airport. But it's a bit cheaper to go on the train. And so I opted for this. I think it was like a, a three-night, four-day journey from Beijing to Pyongyang, which is the, the capital of, of North Korea. Going through China, you're going dead fast because everything's high speed, all like this electricity. And then you go onto the rails in in North Korea and they're not built for for like modern modern trains. So you can't go as fast on them. And you're just like like pottering through the, the countryside. We've all kind of watched the documentaries and have sort of heard the stories about North Korea, right? And that's sort of the idea that you've got your guide and they take you through and it's all kind of very staged and they put on a performance and all that kind of stuff. To you, was there any point at which, I don't know, there was just a slight crack, whether in a guide or in somebody you met or in something you saw where actually you saw the real scenario behind the charade at any point? I think the charade has been built up a little more in the Western world than what it actually is one of our guides had like a, a phone and they have it although it's it's in the intranet there so it's it's like a heavily censored version of the internet our tour guide had like a, a phone with like apps and games on and stuff like that now i'm not saying they have anywhere near as much freedom as we do but i don't think they're as closed off um as a lot of people may think i've gone down the rabbit hole in north korea right and like i i hear what you mean in in the sense that I think uh, they are a little bit more down to earth, but I also think it's um, it's kind of known that that's your guide and that's your direct ecosystem while you're there visiting, but that's probably a tiny pocket of the population. Did you ever get to see 
the people outside of that direct um, group. You're not really ever talking to locals because you'll go get taken into a restaurant, for example, and you'll get taken into your own separate room. So sometimes you walk past all the locals and go to the back and get put in, in, in your own room. Sometimes you'll be taken into the restaurant like in a different uh, entrance and you won't go past or mix with any of the locals at all. You just go like straight down some stairs and you'll have like the basement room or whatever it is. So it can get a bit um, weird like that because you would like to mix with the locals and maybe have a chat with them. But they obviously like to keep tourists and locals apart. And then there's another part of it where you take the metro. So you take the their, their subway to uh, ride it maybe a, a couple of stops across the city. And you're mixing with locals. Again, there's loads of locals on the subway. I don't think they're paid actors, by the way. I think they're just people going about the day. But again, they don't mix with you. They, they don't speak to you. And I think if you speak to them, you might just get pulled by one of your, your tour guides and, you know, get told to knock it on the head, essentially. So what? Why was it so weird? Like when we started talking about it, you said it was the, one of the weirdest experiences. Like, you know, it do, it does sound like it's not what you think in terms of like the whole charade and what you're expecting. But why does it still stick? Why does that trip still stick out in your mind as being particularly weird? Like, what was the weirdness about it? Because there's no there's no freedom. So I like let's say. I, I when I go abroad to a lot of places, I like to walk around cities so you get a good feel for them. There, there's no walking around when you're in North Korea. You're literally told, like, once you're in your hotel, stay in your hotel. You can have a wander around the the lobby. They've got like a pool table, a bar, a little gift shop. You're allowed to go in these places, but you're not allowed to go on certain floors in your hotel. You're not allowed to to have a walk around outside or anything like that. Um, a couple of the the attractions you go to. So. <laughs> It was so weird. We went to this this school and the school kids put on like a performance for us. So it was these girls that were maybe aged, there was a group of them, so they maybe aged five to 12. And you're just sat in this room, like a, a group of Westerners. And you've got these like girls that are like doing some like traditional North Korean dancing and singing for you. And you just sat there like, it's a bit, bit weird this. They're like, it's quite like an intense environment. And you've just got these like, school girls like dancing for you now can you imagine like in the uk if you were at school when you were younger and a load like a, a group of like i don't know people in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s just came to watch you do a performance but like random people not like parents or anything like that just a random group of tourists come to your school to watch you perform it would be a, a bit obscure and then outside the school they had like a, a playing field and there was all these lads playing football on it. And not one of them turned around to look at us. Now, if there was a group of, like, say, like, Asian people, like, staring at us at school playing football, you'd look you'd look at them and you'd point to them and you'd be like, I wonder what they're doing. But these didn't even, like, flinch. They didn't take note of us or anything. So, like, that was, that was pretty, pretty obscure. Was it, like, fear or was it... Because they were like, okay, off you go now, play football, and all these white people are going to come watch you. And so they, it wasn't a surprise. Like, what's your observation? Like, what's your read on that situation? I think it's just conditioning, really. Like, they, they've probably been told by the parents, you know, if you see a white person, for example, don't approach them, don't speak to them. A, a bit like parents over here, like, will go on about stranger danger, don't approach strangers, talk to them. And... The, the odd kid might do that, but it's just kind of drummed into you from a young age not to get in a car with a stranger or not to, 
you know, mix with people that, that maybe uh, come across as a bit unsavory. So I suppose it's just a mixture of, of willpower and being told not to do that growing up. But but also I think with, with North Korea, what what's a bit bizarre as well is just the concept of the, this country where the vast majority of its population aren't really allowed to leave because they, they've got no choice. And yet you're there playing pool, having a beer with you know a few people you met a couple of days ago and i just remember one day we were it, it was the it was the second night we were there and i was just having a pint of the local it's called like tae dong dang beer or something like that and i was having a pint of that playing a game of pool we were playing like doubles and i just said to like everyone there like how weird is this to think like right now we're stood in north korea one of the most closed off countries in the world and we're just having a beer and playing pool it was just a, it was just a bizarre feeling and just one more thing as well. So I think because North Korea is quite a poor country, they can't afford electricity like we can. So when we were getting the train through the North Korean countryside, it was kind of late afternoon and then it went into evening and into night. And at night, there's like there was just like no, you'd be passing through little towns. There was just no lights on anywhere. The only light you could, you'd ever see in the middle of the night passing through is I could see it in the distance, this little speck of light as we were approaching it, it was getting bigger. And it was like this, it looked like either the side of a school or the side of like an administrative building. And it had the the portraits of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, who were the father and grandfather of the, the current leader, Kim Jong-un. They were just illuminated, these two pictures of the leaders. There was no other electricity on in the town. And it's like they can't afford to get electricity for the local people, but they can afford to illuminate these photos 24 hours a day. And at night, everything turns off at midnight. Like midnight hits, all the lights just go out in the city. So one of the nights I just stood there at my window with the curtains open and I just watched until midnight hit and all the electricity just went off in this like massive city of like 2 million people. It was a strange sight to see, but an interesting looking to life in north korea i suppose how much of that sort of brainwashing kind of thing do you see like do you have to see everybody have to kind of i don't know what their pledge of allegiance or whatever is that like a daily thing and did you hear your guide like everything is thanks to the leader and is it all that kind of stuff going on or how much of that did you see one day we visited it's called like the mansu hill grand monument and you might have seen it it's the massive like ginormous statues of kim il-sung and kim jong-il and when you're visiting it they're very strict on what you can do. So you, everyone has to buy flowers to lay at the feet of these statues. But you can only approach the statues going towards it and moving back from it, facing the statue. So you can't turn your back on the statues. And if you take any photos of, um, say, newspapers with, with the leaders on, if you take any photos of these statues, if you take any photos of the of the, the prints of, of them on the wall, you've got to have the, the entire photo on your camera like you can't take a photo and like it chops off half the body or you can't take a photo and it chops off the hair it has to have to be completely within your camera lens it's yeah that that that, that was where they are quite strict with their leaders and, and and i stupidly i don't know why i did this but they, they call like their leaders i think one of them's called like the the great general or the great marshal or something like that and kim kim jong-un who's the current one He's called like the supreme leader. And I didn't do this on purpose, but for some stupid reason, on the train into North Korea, I had like a, a t-shirt on that said Supreme, like the brand Supreme. 
I had a Supreme T-shirt on. And I didn't really make the connection with Kim Jong-un. And everyone was winding me up on the train. To, like saying, oh, you're going to get... You're, as soon as we get to Pyongyang, you're going in, in jail and stuff like that. And I just... It looked like I was taking the piss out of North Korea. Because I had Supreme across me, me chest. And it looked like I was mocking Kim Jong-un. But fortunately, none of the, the guards picked up on it. And he didn't care. What's the scariest moment um, you've experienced in your travels? I think I've been very lucky in terms of... I've never really experienced anything too bad or or, or too dangerous on, on my travels because i'm not like a a small person so i think i think if you're like a mugger or someone looking to attack someone like you, you wanted to mug a tourist you're probably not going to come and mug me and i'm not just saying that like oh i'm dead hard or anything it's just there's probably better targets you know like it's probably easier to mug a woman than it is to, to mug me for example but I've, so I've never really come, even when I've gone to slightly more dangerous countries, I've never really come into any danger. There still must be some hairy, like, obviously, you know, what you're saying is, is correct, right? And that's like a physical harm. But also, there's sometimes there's danger in other ways when you're just in a more vulnerable situation of being taken advantage of around the language and all that kind of stuff. When I went to Magaluf, so you'd actually think this will be one of the sound ones, but I thought I was... a literally i thought for a second i was dying because we went out one night and it was in 2013 and around that time yaya torre and colo torre both play for man city so they're the two footballers who are brothers and there was a song that that went like colo 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 and then that summer every group of lads whenever there was a a, a group of lads it would just, that Colo Yaya Torre chant would just be going off. I remember that all summer, yeah. Time, so we, we were in, in Magaluf 2013 and we were on the strip one night and we started that chant off. So me and my mates just started doing it. There's five of us. And literally within about 30 seconds, there's about two or 300 people out on the strip, in the street, all doing the exact same thing. And it was getting dead loud and a bit leery. Next thing is, I literally fall to the floor. I can't breathe. Like, I stopped breathing, and I'm thinking, in my head, I'm thinking, this is my, like, second lad's holiday. I've overdone it. I've drank too much. I've literally finished myself off. What an idiot. This is what was going through my head in, in this split second. And then I, I turn around, and everyone else is, like, clutching the chest or coughing, and they're on the floor as well. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? And what I realized was what they'd done is to disperse this crowd that we created. They basically tear-gassed everyone. So... In the, because I was drunk and because I was kind of it was my second lad's holiday and I was you know still fairly new to it. I thought I just I drank too much and I'd been an idiot and I'd finished myself off. In actual fact, when the fellas rang the police, they come down, tear gassed everyone, and it dispersed the crowd within <laughs> within moments. So um, they obviously didn't take too kindly to to big mobs of lads chanting football songs, but. I would say that was probably the the time I felt in most danger. But in, in terms of like wandering around, I, I honestly think I've been really lucky because a, lo a lot of people say the kind of general advice is not to flaunt your valuables. If you've got jewellery or if you've got cameras, put them away. Don't have them out on display. But I, I, I have a YouTube channel, do a lot of vlogs, and I have my GoPro out with me virtually everywhere I go. And I honestly think it deters people from doing anything because if they try and steal something from your pickpocket, yeah, attack you, there's every chance you could catch them on camera. And I think having a GoPro in my hand actually makes people a bit wary 
if 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 trying any to start anything with me, and and on one of my videos I went to uh, in twenty twenty, uh, not not just after the first lockdown, but a bit before the second, I went to Mexico because it was one of the few countries you could get in without needing a COVID test, and uh, I wasn't vaccinated at the time either because. I think it was when the older people were getting vaccinated. So we, I could only really go to countries where you didn't have to have a test. And on one of my Mexico vlogs, if you watch it, a fella comes up behind me, puts his hood up, goes to what I assume is pickpocket me and sees the camera and takes it like darts right. So you can actually see on the video, because I, I'm, I'm vlogging like this, I'm looking into the camera. I, I can't see him come up behind me. But when I watched it back on the video... I noticed that he came up behind me, saw the camera, thought, don't want to be involved with that, put his hood up and, and walked off. So it does deter people, like, like having, having your, your your camera out. So that that's like a weird kind of, it goes against all the advice, but it, it works. And I think it's helped keep me safe and out of danger somewhat. You've been to 91 countries, right? Um, when I asked you what was your scariest moment, I did not expect Magaluf to be... <laughs> to be the scariest moment. I, I think that's one of the reasons I love traveling so much though, is because a lot of what you're saying to me is probably based off things, you, you know, that, that, that kind of assumption that it wouldn't be somewhere close to home. It, it's probably something, you know, that you've grown up, or, or not just you, but, but like the general population grows up with because of things you hear in the media of, of wars and of unrest and stuff like that. But when you actually go to a lot of these countries, they're nowhere near as bad as, as, the media makes out or what, what you see on television makes out because they're reporting all the bad things but most people aren't bad most people are, are nice hard-working helpful friendly people just just like you or me and yet you go to these countries and you'll soon find out that your sort of preconceived notion of what it's going to be like is actually probably quite a bit different from what you'll find when you visit and i think that's like like I say that's one of my favorite things about travel it kind of breaks down those barriers and uh, it kind of helps you to reassess your view of the world. If you have to pick the most useful hacks that you found for traveling, whether that's to do with on a budget, to do with saving time, it, it can be anything. What would they be? Uh, so number one is probably like the most valuable. If, if you have a job where you can't just, you know, leave everything and travel the world and you can't work from your laptop in another country, you can sleep when you're dead. That is literally like my, probably like my biggest tip. It's, it's saved me so many annual leave days before. Like we went, we went in 2019, just before COVID, went to a, a football game in Germany and it was happening on a, on a Thursday. And I'm a fan of, I'm a fan of Everton, which is my local team, but I also support Roma. So there's a, a Roma North UK club um, where we all get together to watch the games, and on this it, it, on this day we went to watch Roma play in Germany. We flew. I, I took the Thursday off, and we flew on the Thursday morning. We slept on the airport floor overnight, and we flew back first thing on the Friday morning, so that I could literally leave the airport, get straight into work, and I didn't have to take two days off. Uh, I go on holiday with my my mates quite a lot, and a lot of them take like a rest day when we get back because we might have been you know, drinking most of the time we were there, having heavy nights and stuff like that. I will literally go into work absolutely exhausted the day after a trip, just so I don't have to take another annual leave day. So that that is probably like my biggest trip, my, my biggest tip is just compromise on sleep because 
you will catch up at some point. But if it saves you a couple of extra days and means you can go to another country or two throughout the year, why why wouldn't you have a couple of days in work when you when you're tired? As long as you're not doing a job where it where it'll be dangerous to be exhausted. You know, if you've got like an office job or something like that then it's the, it's the perfect thing to do. So I would say tip number two is to kind of use holiday days. If you work a nine to five like me, it is to use your holiday days close to bank holidays. So over Easter just gone, uh, I took a couple of week trip, uh, two week trip to Africa. And within that, there was Good Friday, Easter Monday. And then I tacked on some, like I think it was four days of annual leave. And I got something like 13 days off in total. Now, if you're doing that under normal circumstances, it will probably, you know, cost you seven, eight, nine days annual leave. Instead, it cost me four. And by sort of joining it onto something like the Easter holidays, you can maximise your your travel um, quite nicely or maximise your annual leave quite nicely for travel there. So I'm always looking for like little bits and pieces like that. Any bank holidays, I'll always add like a day or two on just so I, I can make, you know, make it a long weekend um, and get to as many different places as, as possible. I, I I will say credit card rewards are only really worth it if you're spending like thousands of pounds. I know I know a lot of uh, journalists and stuff talk about how they got this like amazing first class fight for free because they spent 50,000 points or whatever, but it's going to be expensive to get to that place. So if you're working on a budget, it's probably not the best thing for it, but credit cards are really useful because if you're ever booking travel, particularly if it's over 100 pounds, always book on your credit card because you get an extra layer of protection. And if you book something on a debit card and that's coming straight out of your bank account, it you don't have the same level of consumer protection as you would if you book with a credit card. I'm not sure the exact reasons why, but if you're, something happens on your trip or your flight gets cancelled, you've got more chance of getting your money back if you book with a credit card or if you book with PayPal credit, PayPal credit's really good. Um, they're, 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 buyer protection as they call it um it's, it's really it's really consumer friendly as well um it's always worth booking your travel on a credit card to just give you that little bit of extra added insurance almost uh that you, the, your debit card wouldn't give you that's so true to unlock those rewards you, you do need to be spending a substantial amount daily and putting that all through the credit card um and if you live a pr like a pretty low-key life sort of monday to friday at least you know it's hard to get through those numbers. To be fair, I, I, I recently got an Avios card. So Avios is kind of like the British Airways um, like rewards point system. And I, I got, mine's like a, a Barclay card. It's a MasterCard. So a lot of a lot of points cards are, are Amex, but I got a MasterCard because when you're traveling around the world and you're spending money, MasterCard's much more uh, common. You know, if you want to pay with a MasterCard in, let's say, Namibia, they're probably going to take MasterCard. They might not take American Express. So I, I would always like try and get like a MasterCard version of the Avios. But I, I've I've probably spent maybe three or four thousand pounds on it. So maybe I've got like three or four thousand points that can probably buy me maybe like a one way flight somewhere like I don't, I don't even know if it can buy me a one way flight somewhere like Dublin. So it, it, you'd have to spend a considerable amount of money, and the amount of money you have to spend you'd be better off just investing that in your actual travels. As someone who also wants to like travel and make the most of like getting a good deal or whatever, how, what's the actual practicality of finding those cheap flights? Because I hear people say that all the time. I was over here and I found a cheap flight. Whereas 
I'm like just I just searched Skyscanner or whatever like what wh- what is that like what is the secret to that um I presume you've almost mastered it at this point what's your strategy for 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 finding those bargains Skyscanner is a starting point I mean Skyscanner is kind of a, a catch-all thing and it's it doesn't just list you know the the airlines offering it also lists from like different providers so I'd always be careful on Skyscanner uh, if booking with providers that aren't the official airline, because if something goes wrong, it might be difficult to, to get sorted or at least more difficult to get sorted if you've gone through like a third party provider. But typically speaking, I, I kind of know the the route maps and stuff um, from sort of my local airports, which are Liverpool and Manchester pretty well. I actually work for Liverpool Airport, so I work in the aviation industry. So that kind of helps knowing where you can fly from those places. And then it's just about looking at different countries and sort of trying to determine how you can get there in in the cheapest way. So sometimes you will get like reasonably priced direct flights. So you'll find a connecting flight through Istanbul, for example, to go to somewhere like Saudi Arabia. You might find a decent deal for £200 one way. But an alternative way to do that is by looking at what other airlines fly to Riyadh Airport, for example, which is in Saudi Arabia, and, and kind of working backwards from that. So wikipedia is a very good resource for finding out which airlines fly to and from which airports because a lot of aviation enthusiasts spend a lot of time to keep it up to date and to keep up to date with the correct information so let's say for example you wanted to go to Riyadh in saudi arabia i'd actually go on the Riyadh airport wikipedia page see which airlines fly from there one of them being wizz air now wizz air they fly from bucharest to Riyadh and then I'd, I'd look right so I can fly from from Bucharest with Wizz Air but who flies to Bucharest so I might do a search and find out that Wizz Air also fly from Liverpool to Bucharest and that flight that was maybe £200 with Turkish Airlines I've now got £250 flights with Wizz Air from Liverpool self-transferring through Bucharest to Riyadh so I've already like halved my sort of expenditure on that where to next i think it will be cool to visit every country every continent which obviously includes antarctica and then also go to space i know that's like a a ridiculous ambition it's gonna cost like probably hundreds of thousands of pounds but you just don't know in like 30 years they might find some way of being able to fly people into space for a reasonable amount of money and I think that will be really cool to be able to have been to every country on earth, have been to every continent, and then to be able to jet up into the sky to sort of look back at the earth from that like galactic view and just to be thinking, I've been to every country on that planet. I think that would be like so cool. If if you get to every con- every country and every continent and to space, you've literally completed it. <laughs> there's nowhere there's nowhere else to go. But I love it, man. I love it. I love that the vision. Um and I love your overall attitude in that in that perspective. It's uh it's amazing. And and even like you say, like obviously right now, space is it's a wild ambition to have, but within our lifetimes, maybe not. You know, so I actually love that that's part of the journey because there is going to come a day when you do run out of countries. One thing I would say is, is that for anyone else looking to, you know, travel to a, a lot of different countries, I think a lot of people come unstuck because they've got no one to travel with. I travel to a, a lot of places on my own. And I think a lot of people, you know, are, are worried about solo travel. And I, I, the way I look at it is 
I could wait to try and find someone that wants to go to the likes of Comoros with me, to Mauritania, to North Korea. But in my opinion, if I wait around for these people, I'll miss the opportunities to go to these places. And we're on a planet with 8 billion people. So you're never, ever going to be alone. There's always going to be someone to have a chat with, you know, that, that'll take an interest in you, no matter where you are on the, you know, on, on the earth. So I, I would uh, I would recommend people at least once in their life. Not everyone will like it, but everyone should at least travel solo once in their life and just experience, you know, different cultures, come out your comfort zone and do it alone. And it just gets you chatting to more people and you, you're mixing with, you know, mixing with people that if you were with your friends or your family you might you might sort of stick with them and you might not mix with so yeah i'd, I'd recommend everyone that that's one tip i'd have everyone at least once in your life do a solo travel where where can people find you like what's the best what's your sort of social and what's the best place for people to find you so uh traveling tom on on youtube travelingtom.com is my blog but if you've if you like the sound of any of the destinations i've talked about and you just need you've got some questions about what there is to do there, how to organise trips to these places. Your best either going on Twitter at Travelling Tom and DMing me, or even better going on Instagram underscore Travelling Tom, and just firing me a message on there. I'm I'm always happy to help people out, and if you know I can get one more person travelling, then that that gives me a bit of joy because it's something I love doing, and it's great to be able to you know help other people on the way and do by doing the the same thing. Yeah, amazing, man. It's amazing to have that, you know, obviously with the scale of influencers and, and content creators now um, to like, yeah, to invite people to like, you know, connect with you in that way um, is amazing. So fair play for that. Um, thanks so much. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, it's It's been fascinating. And uh, yeah, like I really wish you the best on, on, on your sort of conquering of the world and possibly space. Um, and I look forward to following it on your on your socials. Um, and I look forward to seeing that YouTube video of the day when you complete all countries in the world, no matter no matter at what point in time that may be. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you.